of course, in the beginning, you don't invite people, so you kind of like, you do it yourself, and this is what you should be doing. But uh, very quickly, when the company is around 30 to 50 people, this is, should be your goal. Your goal should be that you build a team and a framework that will do it for you. Today, NFX general partner Gigi Levy-Weiss is sitting down with Avishai Abrahami, the CEO of Wix.com. Avishai has built Wix into a company of about 5,000 people with $1.4 billion in revenue. They'll cover how founders can become great CEOs, measurements that most startups miss, the difference between good failure and bad failure, and much more. Let's jump in. Hi, Avishai. Hey. Thanks for joining us for the podcast today. I was waiting a long time for this, and I'm so happy that you're with us. I don't know if you know, but a few years ago, I wrote a piece and made a video for NFX, which is called What Makes a Strong Startup CEO. It's one of our top performing essays, I think. And it basically something that I really focus on, which is what makes a startup founder really good as a CEO, but even more importantly, so what it makes them really good as leaders. And this is exactly why I wanted to talk to you. You know, if you're the founder of Weeks, you know, you're a world-class CEO, you know, that's what I think. You're a superstar, a super founder, super goals-driven. You're great, from what I can see from the outside, in recruiting and supporting and motivating talent. And so, you know, the success of the company, I think, is very much because of that and of the team that you recruited. I mean, how large is the company today? Like, how many users today? We have 230 million users and all of them are small businesses, right? No, we actually have everything. We have a mix, right? So we have a lot of small businesses, but we have also a lot of uh, people that want to do a project or school project. We have about uh, probably around a huge amount of students, like from the United States, from schools or university of colleges. And uh, we are selling to 192 countries, which is everywhere possible on the, on the planet. And how, many, and how many languages like other websites, like in every possible language? I think we support 17, if I remember correctly. And what's the company's revenues, more or less? About 1.4 billion for this year. That's a nice number. And how many people in the company? The company has around uh, 5,000 people. And how many years ago did you start it? We started at the end of 2006, so I would say 2007. So that's uh, quite a while ago. That's quite a while ago, that's for sure. Yes, it is true. And so founders, everybody listening, I mean, I think that you guys should really pay attention here because in the next kind of half an hour to an hour, Avisha is going to help you understand about leadership, which is where I think this company excels. So, you know, one of the topics that we talk about is the difference between being a founder which is just a practical thing of starting a company and then turning this into being a good CEO, which many of the founders have never been before, and then turning this into being a great leader and the personal growth that you need to undergo to be good at all these things. And, you know, as we know, there are many that are good at being a CEO in terms of the manager, managerial skills. There are others that are good at being leaders, but not great at being CEOs. And some are good at both. So can you tell me a little bit about the first days co-founding Wix? Like, what were you like then? You know, how did you change from that point onwards? Well, you're talking about me personally? Yeah, yeah, you personally. You're not going to get off the hook. First of all, I think that there's a... Founder, I was very lucky that I had uh, two strong co-founders with me, and uh, Giora Kaplan, Gig, was a genius, my young brother, which is uh, brilliant. And very early, we had uh, Nir Zohar joining, so the team around me was phenomenal. And, and I think that is probably my biggest trick. If you ask me what is the best trick, that one trick that I can uh, say and teach or explain is get phenomenal talent 
for the journey with you. I'm always saying that uh, my biggest skill as a founder and CEO is that I grew up in a family where I'm the least intelligent person in the house and because both my brothers are brilliant and my parents are and I'm the older kid so to feel comfortable and of course you know so I learned to manage people smarter than me because that's what the older kid does right is managing his young brothers and his parents and uh, so for me to feel at home I need to be surrounded by people that are smarter than me. And I think that gave me a huge advantage over most founders that I know. Because a lot of people try to create environments where they are the smartest person in the room. And for me, it just feels unnatural. So for me to feel comfortable, I need to be surrounded by people that are smarter than me. So I think that's the number one thing I can say. The biggest difference, right, is if you think about it, what is the biggest difference between a founder to CEO? So a founder, you have an idea, right? And of course, you start a company. Everybody can do that. What makes a good founder is that he can create a clear vision, execute on the vision, hire really good people, and deliver the product, work on the marketing campaigns, him and his founding team, and get to the point when the company starts. A good CEO, right, to transition to be CEO, you don't do those things anymore yourself. You need to build a mechanism to hire good people. You need to build a mechanism and a team that will do the marketing. You need to build a mechanism to do the product. You need to build a mechanism, okay, to do the engineering. And when I talk about a mechanism, part of it, of course, is a human factor, right, when you need to have really good engineers. The other thing is that you need to have a mechanism is also how you measure when it's doing things well, right? So you need to have something that is visible, to say, well, we're doing things well, we're progressing. And the next part is, of course, that it's always clear why and how we're trying to achieve something. So I think when I started, I think a lot of the things were not so clear to me that this is my number one goal is to build mechanisms that will do that and not do it myself. Of course, in the beginning, you don't have other people, so you kind of like you do it yourself, and this is what you should be doing. But uh, very quickly, when the company is around 30 to 50 people, this should be your goal. Your goal should be that you build a team and a framework that will do it for you. I love that because this is very much like the concept that I like writing about and talking about, which is that I always say that the role of the founder as a manager is to basically create the strategy, which is the vector in which you need to run, then to put the team in place, which is the people that are supposed to carry the company in that vector, then create a set of KPIs that are the measurements that make sure that you're in the right direction, and then basically take a step backwards, let the team go in this direction and measure it, and then in a cycle, go back after, you know, used to be maybe an old company, used to be every year, and now it's in a startup, it's like every week, and ask yourself, are we running in the right direction? Do we have the right team to take us there? And are we measuring the right things? And then if you don't have the right strategy, shift it a little bit. If you don't have the right team, fix it. And if you're measuring the wrong things, fix the KPIs, and then just continue on and on and on. And what I hear from you is that you're basically seeing it the same where it is basically building the mechanism, which is a set of methodology, process, and KPIs, and getting the best people to do that and just repeating this again and again and again. Did I get it right? Yeah, you did. I did notice that companies have a bit of variety on what are the mechanisms to use and how to build them. But if you look at the better companies, the variety is not so big. Essentially, end up being very similar. And not on the, on the at least on the principles, and you covered a lot of them when you said, uh, measure, make it visible, make sure that you have the great people. And of course, those are the output. This is the outputs of, of that process, of the mechanism. But the mechanism themselves, I think, are also very similar. So it'll be a lot about how to do the meetings, how to run the project. And I think those are essentially what make the mechanisms, right? And like, what I notice is that if you look at great teams, those are very similar. So could you give like a few examples of the unique mechanisms you have in weeks, like the few things that you put in place that you think were 
core to the management methodology that made Wix what it is, and they allowed you later on to scale because these mechanisms were in place so that everybody could use them? Yeah, let me start with the principle, okay? So we put a principle very early, which is a, if you can't measure it, it didn't happen, okay? We measure everything, and you cannot measure it, it didn't happen. So this is a very clear one, saying you can't take pride on something that is unmeasurable, okay? If you did something, you think it's going to influence support, and it didn't, well, it's worth nothing, Right, if you cannot measure it. If you do marketing and you can't measure an improvement, it's worth nothing. Okay? Don't mention it because it didn't happen from our perspective. By the way, and it's fine, right? It's fine if you do things and we found that they didn't do the effect that we wanted. So we actually also measured the amount of times you tried something, right? Which is a positive thing because not everything you're going to do. So we added another principle which says allow failure. This is kind of like the top principle, but when you take it into a deeper one level, it becomes more interesting. So for example, let's look at the chart and hiring. Okay. How do you build a mechanism around that? So a mechanism around that, the one we ended up with is that we test everybody. Well, there's one exception. If people work with the person before, somebody we trust worked with somebody before, we know who he is, but we test everybody. So if you're coming to Wix and you want to be an engineer, we're going to test you, but everybody's doing that. But if you're coming to Wix and you want to work for HR, we're going to also test you. And because that's a principle that we agreed on, that that mechanism of hiring, we had to come up with a test that ended up saying, well, what's the most important thing for HR? The most important for HR is that they're bringing the right talent. So we test everybody in HR by letting them interview people that already work at Wix that we know. So then we'll see how well they evaluate somebody on a, based on an interview and compare it to what we know on that person. Mm -hmm. By doing that, we've created a test that allow us to know how good somebody is. From that point, then when we do hiring, we also measure the quality of the people we hired, right? And as a result of that, we can always tune the HR processes and get a better and better mechanism right? and better talent in HR, which of course influences the talent in all of the company. And so this kind of thinking, I think, is very important. And this is something that takes quite a while. So let me jump in a few of these because I find them super interesting. I think when I love the concept of testing everybody that joins the company, I think that there's not a company too small to actually do that. And many times I get pushback from founders who either fear that good candidates are not going to want to uh, take a test because they're just coming to work in a small startup or others that are saying that they wouldn't know how to test each one of these roles because, you know, they're either techies or they're product people. What would you say to a young founder that says, maybe I should start with testing only when we're like a few hundred people? Because I, like you, think that you should start super early. That is an idiot. I'm not joking, right? We are the first HR for that test, okay? And she was a super senior, way more senior than our company in that stage needed. And it says a lot about the person that she was like willing to go for this process, okay, it says about a lot about her, right? That she was willing to participate in that. And engineers, there's no other way to hire engineers. Now, you cannot talk about software. That's complete rubbish. And when it comes to design, obviously you do it. When it comes to financials, let somebody build a model, and then you know. So I think that's completely wrong. What I personally like, other than coding, where there's a practical test that you actually take as a test, what I personally like is giving people kind of missions to do and then come back and present them? Is this what you guys like as well? Well, yeah, sometimes right in the HR, what we did is that we actually let her interview and then we asked her after that about the people that, you know, we did it for a few HR candidates and we just compared what they told us to what we knew about the people they interviewed. And so that was a task, but in the office, right, 
that you interviewed over two hours. Let's jump for a second into hiring, which, you know, I think, uh, you, as you said before, surrounding yourself with people smarter and better than you is the key. How do you think about hiring and the startup in the early stage and hiring top talent? We spoke about testing them, but like what processes do you think should be in place? Like how many interviews, who should interview a person and kind of what percent of your time do you think you should spend as a young founder on hiring, kind of dedicating to finding the best people? Until you have the right people. I'm going to say that. Why? Because as a startup, you have an objective. You know, only want 15 people in the company. Well, you should spend all the time needed until you have 15 people that are the right people, right? So it can be a lot of time. And then at some point, it can be very little time. When it comes to hiring, I'll give you an example. I cycled for 22 people before I found the Omer Shaima CMO. So I hired, I moved people to different things. I fired people. I think it was around 22 people that they hired within about a year and something, right? Year and a half. And some of them I hired as juniors and hoped that they're going to be, or like, I didn't give them any official title to everybody in that team. So I was looking at who's going to be the best. And then when I got to Omer, after a few weeks, I was obvious that he's on a different level. And uh, this is another part of a very, uh, for me, it's a very important lesson that I learned in my life, is that it's very hard to know who's a super talent on the interview, even on the test. You can suspect who's a super talent, but you're not, you're not going to be sure about it. But a month or two after, it's very easy to know. And in the beginning of a startup, it's so important to have super talents. So you should allow yourself the room to make mistakes and replace people. And so this is another very important thing. I want to tell you another funny story about Omer. I'm just uh, So after I hired Omer, and my next guy that I wanted to hire was Tomer Barzev, from, uh, that now is the CEO of Iron Source. It was before Iron Source. And uh, so we're talking, and he said, you know, yeah might be interested. And then he asked to, to talk to Omer. After an hour and a half that they were talking, Tomer came out and said, listen, he's way better than me. Don't hire me. Keep him. It's <laughs> a nice story. But this is another thing, right? But there's only one guy, I think, that Tomer is a legend, right? And by the way, that time he was unemployed. He needed a job, right? It's not like he was... I found it to be super impressive. And I was thinking with him about whatever he can do next in weeks. And then, of course, uh, he started the... Uh, iron source and, and build this incredible company. But I really believe that when you hire people, you should, as a startup, let yourself cycle for people if they're not the talent that you need, if they're not the super talent. But in a startup, there's another thing, right? You cannot really always hire the best people because you don't have the money, you don't have the time. Sometimes you have to understand that you need to sell for some roles and then replace them when you, have, you do have the right talent coming. And what do you believe about kind of you, when you recruit somebody and they're kind of okay after a few weeks or a month. Are you one of those people that believes in giving people, you know, a few more months to improve or do you think that you should fix mistakes really quickly? I think you should fix mistakes most of the time quickly. Not all the time. It depends, right? I'm just going to tell my philosophy and this is like that. A players hire A players, A plus players hire A plus players and B players hire C players. So if you want your organization to, you cannot keep somebody and make him into a manager as a B player, okay? you'll find that your organization goes and C player hire D players and D players are F players, right? And so if you're not on top of that and you don't keep super talents to be the majority of the managers in the team, you will end up with a really bad organization. I love that. And it's also one of my favorite things. I also love the what you said about, you know, when you're not sure that you have the right person for the top, top job, getting people, if you can, to actually come and work without the title and then keep yourself the optionality to see who performs best and give them that role. This is something that I didn't hear many people say. I've done this many times before and it worked really well. Clearly harder to do, but when it works, it works so well. 
This is something that I give nobody a title in the beginning. And by the way, today at Wix, you can choose your own title. So choose whatever title you want. We're going to say it's true. <laughs> what does that mean? It means that we're not negotiate with you on what's your title. Right? And you can take whatever title you want. We don't care. It doesn't change your role. It doesn't change what you do. It's not going to change your salary. Okay. But if it's really important for you what is written on your LinkedIn, feel free to write whatever you want. We don't care. I like that. It can create a funny situation where somebody will... Uh, from a child will negotiate with the candidate and then want some tile and then they fight with them and they argue about them and then they shall say, well, you know what? We're going to allow you to do that. If you sign, so the guy sign, come to the orientation day in weeks and the first thing they see is that, well, you can choose whatever title you want. We don't care. And do you think that over the years, what has changed in the way you're thinking about the kind of talent that you want? I mean, did you need more entrepreneurial people earlier on? And then as the company grow, you move to different type of people? Do you still look for the same kind of people? How did that change over the years? Well, it depends. It depends on the cycle of growth of the company and where it's growing. So, for example, we're now starting a new business, which is in the enterprise business. We're seeing a lot of larger companies using Wix to build uh, their website. Right? And it's suddenly, you know, it's not a small business, it's a big company. It requires different things, uh, a lot of enterprise thinking, right? And we don't have that. So we need to hire people with experience there, right? And extending into that is something that requires us to hire people that really know a lot of the things. And a lot of the regular things we do, and like in marketing and product, I prefer people with less experience and a lot of talent because we can teach them how we do things. And not that we have to unlearn them, make them forget about how they already work, and then try to teach them new thing, uh, how we work, right? Obviously, it's sometimes true, sometimes not. In developers, it's a bit different because it takes a lot of time to be a really good developer. And then moving from one environment to another is relatively easy most of the time. It really depends what is the area and what is the, if it's a new thing, if it's a thing that exists and you already have a really good way of doing that, then you want to hire probably people that you can teach your way and not that you have to unlearn something. So it really depends. There's no rule. In a startup, you know, the best thing, of course, is to hire a very experienced CMO from a very successful company, an amazing CTO that is used to manage a thousand people and likes coding himself, so he is very hands-on on the code, and a HR that knows how to build on organization of a thousand people and you can, if you can do that when your startup is starting that's incredible but I never met anybody who did that at that level right so the theory and what is practical here are very different and you have to understand that you're probably going to be people that are not all of them going to grow to the next level right and that's fine and so it's so much easier I think to hire somebody and say well you're helping me manage this there's no senior title here and then when you actually get to a place where it's a hundred people need somebody who knows how to build an HR organization right you can bring one without demoting them. Yeah, definitely not always trivial. And I think you guys did a great job. Talk about measuring everything. And again, many founders that I talk to end up being really decent or good at measuring the core business KPIs because that's kind of what everybody told them over the years. So, you know, you have, you know, you have conversion, you have retention, you have everything. But then when it came to measuring things that were what they felt are support tasks to the company, they were really bad at putting KPIs to that. Is Weeks measuring everything? everything on every front? We are trying. I got to say, not as much as I want, right? But uh, definitely more than others. This is the first thing I want to say. Most startups that I meet and most uh, companies, they measure, even on the business, they measure a lot less than they should, okay? And so they come with conversion and it's usually percentage-based conversion, which is not relevant. You always have to measure conversion on dollars, then they measure a few things on sales efficiency. Then they measure a few things on other things and they have like five Okay? You cannot understand your business from five parameters. There's no way to do that. 
Okay. And if you only focus on five, somebody wants to, I don't know if it's true that Facebook used to measure just interactions. Well, if you just measure interaction, just going to make product that add buttons that nobody yeah. needs, right? It's going to add so much more interactions. I don't think it's true. Again, I have no idea. I've never worked at Facebook, but I just want to show something that is so silly. Okay. And I think that a lot of the companies I see do that. We actually generate pretty much from the first days, I would say probably about 20 pages of things that we look in graphs on the business side, which very quickly grew to more than that. But this enabled us to understand really what I think that the details that actually change in the business, okay, and where we want to influence something, where we see a drop, where we see improvement, where we don't understand something. Not creating that visibility early on is going to be something that will leave you with so much that you don't understand about what drives your business. And I know there's tons of book about it, like, oh, you should you measure five, you should measure three, you should measure, this is your North Star. I've never seen a company that actually has uh, found those five magical things. So my opinion on that is that if you do it, then you're missing the actual picture of what's happening in your business. And so early on in the week's days, like how many things do you think you actually tracked to understand what the business is? I mean, I think about some of the companies that I ran and, you know, I used to spend, it was definitely, I don't know, 15 to 20 minutes every morning understanding all the, you know, like looking at everything, making sure that I understand what's really happening in the business by looking at a bunch of things. How many, you know, early on in the business, how many things, how many data points did were you guys looking at to know where you are and to take smart decisions? Well, let's look at that. Okay, so the first thing is, of course, where people come from. So what countries, okay, what keywords, then the conversion on the language pages, okay, then the ads that worked, then conversion from each one of them to the product, then what people try to do, so what they told us was selected they're trying to do on Wix, then what they actually did, then what they used in order to try and do that, what is the correlation of success on that, what kind of template they choose, okay, when did they churn, what did they buy, why were the support things they asked for, oh, and of course the quality, the, so this was a, how pretty it was, for us it was very important, it still is, the content that they made, and the, how much they completed on the website in each interaction. So those are the basics one we measure for our business. But this allowed me to understand, well, we need more templates, or we need different ones, or we have an issue with that thing, and not that thing, okay? And that is true for every company. There's always those things, because you want to understand your customers. You need to follow on the customer, right? Your just conversion is an output from this huge amount of things that are happening on your product, right? There's so much that's happening. And if you don't look at the whole picture, you don't understand the whole funnel and then how to use the product. You don't understand what is happening to the customers. At the end of the day, we all work for the customer. We don't work for ourselves to make money. We work for the customer hoping that one day we'll have enough value that we can actually earn money from that and then we can scale it. Yeah. And so one of the things that I found out that measuring everything gets you to is clearly a good problem, which is transparency and everybody seeing what's happening in the business. But that kind of forces you to be able to accept failure in a much more meaningful way than companies that where there's no transparency and people don't know that things don't work. How do you think about accepting failures in a, you know, in a younger company? And how do you deal with it in weeks today where, you know, the larger the company becomes, the easier it is to fall into the trap of there's a performance review and failures is what gets you to get a lower performance. And so, you know, what we know is that in huge companies, one of the reasons there's no innovation is because people are afraid to fail because your best route to getting promoted is not failing and just staying on track. And we don't want that in startups, then definitely not in weeks. So how do you deal with allowing people to fail if it's the right kind of failure and not being afraid 
that this is going to be negative. I want to distinguish, first of all, to make a clear distinction. There is a big difference between I failed because I did it well and the assumption that I was wrong. It didn't work. Yep. And there is another kind of failure, which is I did it badly and it didn't work. Okay. And it's not the same because on the first one, I'm happy. And the second one, I don't want you to continue yep. to work at Wix. Okay. Well, obviously not always, but this is the principle. I think that we want people to do very things very well and then it might fail. There's a few things that you want to do. Like I would a lot of time mention that project or my decision, I wanted it and it failed, even if it's not always true. Because at the end of the day, I think about it is that the team recommended, I approved it. Okay. So from that point and on, it's my responsibility if it fails or succeed. Okay. Mostly if it's failed, if it succeeds, it doesn't have to be my responsibility. But then if, if a team will come and say, well, we did it, it doesn't work. A lot of people say, come on, it doesn't work, look what they did. I would always be the first guy to say, no, 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 that is my project. I approved it, I wanted it. And now I think it's to be part of the language of the company. The next thing is uh, we don't work on checking if everything you did. There's like no forum in which we look at everything somebody did and we go, well, you did it, it didn't work. You did this, it did work. You did this, it doesn't work. All those tests happen in the background, right? Through the organization as part of the day-to-day -day activity, okay? Which means that you don't go around and yell, I succeeded or I failed, okay? An experiment didn't work, you just turn it off and move to the next one. So by doing that, I think we've created much more freedom for people to fail, to test and find that it's not working. I think this is so critical. And I also love your distinction. I used to, when I ran companies, I used to distinguish between what I called good failures and bad failures. Good failures are the ones where you basically did everything right and the assumption was wrong or the thing you wanted to test is just, you know, proved to be wrong. And that's great because we now know not to do it. And bad failures because you didn't work well or didn't test as well or, you know, put out a product that's buggy or something. Let's jump for a second to meetings. I mean, you know, one of the tougher things as companies grow is the number of meetings and the amount of wasted time on meetings that are there just because they're there. I know that this is something that you care about. How do you guys deal with that? How did you make sure that in growing the company, the company didn't become a bureaucratic you know, meeting creator? And what do you recommend to founders in that regard early on? Well, first of all, I got to say, I think we have too many meetings, okay? mm -hmm. just to be clear. And I think that we might be better than other companies, a lot of other companies, but we are definitely not where I think we should be. I think that people, most people should have maybe a meeting a day. So I think that uh, the only people that have more meetings should be management and especially senior management because they actually do nothing else except meetings, right? That's the job part. I think that most people should have very little and, and we're not there. So I found that we did a few things. One, we broke the company in what we call sub-companies, and each one of those is kind of like, so each one of those is what we call a CEO of that team, and that guy is a chairman. The chairman is always for my management team, okay? And this is was very important. What we found out is that people are always waiting and trying to convince meetings. So it would always go up and down, up and down, up and down, and people will wait for things and for approval. And we made a rule that says, well, that this CEO of a team and the chairman can pretty much get uh, make any decision they want. And which said, essentially, now if somebody want to make a decision, he can make the decision with one person, right? And because that person is for my management team, I trust him. I know that he knows most of the time, at least as well as I do, what we want to achieve. And so this did a magical thing for decision-making. Because I think the worst thing is not just meaning. It means that you don't get a decision in. Right, so you have another meeting, another meeting, another meeting, and things get delayed and delayed and delayed. So that was a, I think, very important thing. We define a clear way to make decision 
based on the person that is managing the team, Wix e-commerce, uh, managed by Arik, uh, him and his chairman is Derry, they can just talk to each other and make a decision on almost everything. And that ex- did a dramatic effect. When you start a startup, of course, you don't have to think about those things, right? You do need to think about something else, and we're going to talk about it in a minute. But because you are there, right? You have 30 people, you talk to each one of them every day. But if you are in a meeting, and it's not an update meeting, let's tell me about something that's happening, okay? And there is like no action items coming from that meeting, written, it was a waste of time. So this is another rule that we have, and I think it's working pretty well. A meeting has to have a clear why we are here and a clear what's happening after. And every project has to have a single owner. There's one guy that owns that project. And just a question on that. Do you have like rules on what you need to send before the meeting so that the meeting can happen? Yes, but, you know, it's a company full of Israelis and Eastern European. So you can have many rules. It works less good than those mechanisms I described before. Yeah. The next part is how you do the project management. Okay. And this is an interesting thing. Most project management usually would have, you have a product guy, he writes the specs, then you have another guy that will work a technical team and they will do sprint or whatever, right? And we found that it's way better to say, well, the owner of the project and everything, the product part is the developer and he actually come to the product guy for clarification and not the other way around. And that made a massive reduction in meetings because now a lot of the engineers are not depending on talking to anybody in order to do what they want. If they think they understand it, they'll do it, okay? And we kind of like made this framework where they present it. Every week you show what you did to the team. So now the team meeting is about showing what you did, which is great for many different reasons. But uh, the more interesting part, I think, here is that because the engineer owned the feature, not the product guy owned the feature, and the engineer can get decision and make decision on that. He doesn't have to escalate, wait for big meetings. Wait for... So that was another massive thing that we did. It takes a lot. You have to be really brave to do it. It's very different than how people today are working in most places. Yeah. And what tools are you using for this project management in-house? Well, we use Monday.com, of course. Of course. I don't think that everybody knows, but clearly Monday started as a week tool. Let's jump for a second to leadership. And I'm going to start by throwing in a statement that I want you to tell me whether you think it's right or wrong. But the statement is that being a good manager and being a good leader is not necessarily the same thing. And that the, the problem with being a startup founder is that you need to be both. I have no idea. I don't know what's a good manager, and I'm not sure I know what's a good leader. I'll tell you how I think about it, right? If I look on the planet today, I, I would rate Elon Musk, a leader and CEO, at a 10, okay? And I know now people like him, don't like him. But in reality, I, I, like, look at what he does in managing so many companies. I don't even know how to compare, but I cannot do what he does in so many companies at the same time. I cannot do it in one company. Okay. Is he a leader or a manager? That's a good question. I think he is a good example of both, right? I think that he's clearly leading the people. You know, there's different definitions of leadership. The one that I like the most is the one that says that a leader takes people to where they should be, but they don't necessarily want to go to, right? It's the ability to get people to get out of their comfort zone and not necessarily do the trivial stuff, but go and do the things that they should do or the places where they should be, where without the leader, they wouldn't go. And I think in that regard, you know, clearly... So what does a manager do? Well, a manager does a lot of the things that we spoke about before that are good processes in determining strategy and the recruiting the right team and setting up the KPIs. And there could be a great manager. And I think we've seen people that are great managers that, you know, there weren't great leaders, which made it tough for them to get people to give more and work harder 
and be more committed. And then there could be great leaders who aren't necessarily great managers. Why? Well, so you're talking about what I call operation. So somebody is very good at defining everything and making sure that people follow the guidelines we discuss and another one that is actually making them exciting and understanding and taking them to the goal. Yes. So I would argue that the second one cannot do it without being very, very detailed on what he wants to achieve. You cannot inspire people by giving a talk. It only works in the movie, right? In reality, you want to talk about how to make a project management or you want to build a site or you want to do a CRM. It's the one who leads that part of that product or whatever. You need to be so excited about the details, right? You want to build an electric car. You need to know the details to lead people into that because they're going to see that you're excited about what they do, which is the details. And so you need to essentially manage the details, right, of the product that you're creating and the customer interaction of all those things. So... I think that both are very important. I think you cannot be a leader without knowing a huge amount of the details of why you're doing that and working with the team on actually achieving on, it on the details. Yeah, I think one of the big things in leading people is making sure that they know that they really understand the company's story and strategy and where it's going. And this is becoming tougher and tougher as the company grows. Like at the beginning, you're like whatever, 15 people. You know, they just hear you all day long and they know exactly where you want the company to go. They know exactly what's your strategy. And then it, it becomes bigger and bigger. You start having town halls and you record yourself and stuff. How do you make sure that everybody in the company kind of knows what's, you know, where the company's heading, what's the strategy, and how does that change over the years? Well, to be fair, I want to say something. It's kind of like, well, in the beginning, you said everybody knows, right? Until 100 and, I don't know, 50 to 200 people, everybody knows what is a... Happening. Yep. And the reason everybody knows what's happening is because you just talk to people or talk to people that directly talk to other people, right? And so that's super easy. And most of the time when you start and you build a startup, the story stays pretty much the same, right? In the first few years, unless you do kind of a pivot, but then everybody knows that you did a pivot, the story stays pretty much fixed. You're just doing the same story better and better. When you grow, you need to start creating communication. So you build all the things, as you said, company meetings, presentations, you talk to senior management, you talk to their management, you do Offhand or whatever, all hand meeting, whatever kind of meeting you want, and, and all those things. But from my experience, I noticed that it matters somewhat, right? Essentially, as long as the company continues to do what it did before and you don't want to change anything essential, it's very easy. And the second that you want to do something in a different way or change a lot of what the way that the company thinks about something, it doesn't matter how many company meetings you're going to do or how much. It's going to be very hard for people to actually believe that the company is actually changing Something. And I think Microsoft demonstrated that with the cloud, right? Yep. Until that uh, they were talking about the cloud and the cloud, and, nobody, and it was kind of like nobody in Microsoft actually used their own cloud. And then one day Satya came and said, well, you have three months to work everything to the cloud. And then it actually happened. So a big part, I think, of how you tell a story when you do a change is to make one of the statements or basis with API first approach, right, at Amazon. You have to be very clear, well, we're not discussing that anymore. This is how we do it. So when a company is very small, you can do it in a conversation. Company is very big, you kind of have to be a bit more blunt about it. But I think that to get the message in a bigger company, when something changes, right, you have to be very, very clear about, well, this is not a presentation, this is not a discussion, this is what's going to happen from now on. And of course, you can do it in a nicer ways and, or in a like Bezos way, which I think was a, either you build it API first or you go home. Yeah. Right. And when you do something, right, and it's a bigger company, then you have to ask yourself, well, is this is something that will continue what we did before, or this is something new? If it's something new, you have to be very proactive and make sure that everybody hears that message. 
How do you think about transparency in the company? I mean, one of the things in culture in a company and being able to be a great leader is, and I'm talking about before becoming a public company where you have restrictions or where you can and can't say sometimes, but how do you balance the needs to basically communicate and be transparent and give everybody the feeling that they're in the know? And then on the flip side, not share, you know, not telling them that when things are not going well and so on, because they are, you know, many times they're going to get afraid. They're going to be looking for a job. They're going to think that the company is not doing well. How did you balance that over the years? Well, I think that first of all, why? I think that's the most important part. Why? And I mean, if you're starting to build a company and you're making sure you bring great talent, okay, then if you give that talent all the information that is, they need, the result will be that great things will happen even without you doing anything doing anything to do to cause it, right? Because you have great talent that is the information they need. And, and so my belief is that sharing information as much as you can, and that would mean that I would have strings that show all the sales, all the KPIs, what users did, what users didn't do, all the issues in support. I would have screens. I would send reports to the level that people would just always come back and tell me, this is too much, we need to reduce it. And I would like, no, 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 don't read it. I don't mind. But I wanted to be a verb all the time. So I was pushing it in a very aggressive way. And I think that created a phenomenal return because a lot of really smart people noticed things that or came with ideas that wouldn't happen without that information. So I just kept pushing it in every medium I had. Company meetings, team meetings, screens around the office, emails, Weekly emails, monthly emails, every possible way. When you're a public company, of course, there's something that you want to share. You, you can no longer share. And that's very sad. That's very tough. How do you think about keeping your company fast? I mean, I know that you are pretty fast per person and you care about speed. And as companies grow, they become slower. What are the methodologies that you have in place to keep everybody around you fast? Well, so from what I notice is that essentially there are a few reasons. Well, there are actually two kinds of reasons that things are getting slower. So the first one is lack of urgency. And lack of urgency means that if you work at Microsoft, you don't feel that Microsoft will be affected, but what do you do, right? It's like, it doesn't really matter. Well, it might matter to you, to your career, to what your boss is saying, but it's not going to influence the bottom line of Microsoft, right? So the way I think about it is that you need to connect people to the customers because when they're connected to the customers, they know that it does matter for the customer using their product. So you want to connect people to the customers. I think this is super important to create motivation. It's also important to create understanding and expertise on why you're doing things and how to do them, what's the customer experience. But I think this is the first part, and I think that's essential. The second part is things slow down a lot of the time because of complex decision-making, which is not sure who's the owner, and we try to make that everything is a clear owner. Uh, long decision-making, as I said, well, you need approval from this guy to get approval from that guy, so we need an approval from that guy. And we eliminated that by creating this sub-company structure. We have the chairman and the CEO that can come to every decision. Then uh, lack of uh, resources. Uh, and lack of resources, I want to be clear, it's not lack of engineers, right, or lack of whatever. It's kind of like, because it's the fact that you need UX, you need a product guy, you need someone to write the content. And if you are waiting in line to get those things, obviously you are slower. Okay? So you need to make those either really available or what we did is that we just gave every large team their own resources. So there's no team in Wix that actually depend on somebody else to get those resources. So that was very important. And I think th those are the things that we identified that create a dramatic effect in velocity. Still other layers for that, right? It's how you write the code. 
that makes a big difference. For example, when you build one service, your company start, your company has three or four services, and when you have three or four services, well, you can just write every service from scratch and it's okay. But when you grow and you have a thousand, then all those blogs that gave you advice on how to write one or two services are no longer relevant because it's a very different problem managing a thousand live services, right? It's very different than two. So this is something that you have to take into consideration. If you are really good technically, I think you should do it from day one. But if not, you're going to have to find that you have to do refactoring a lot. So that's another important thing. Getting very clear product and project management methodologies, I think is also very important for a velocity. So those are the things. Now, I want to say here something else, if I may, which is not exactly that, right? Not exactly direct answer to your question, but I also hear a lot of time from founders. And I think that tech startups, right, or companies have only two situations. The first one is that they don't have enough resources for all the things it's obvious they need to do. And the second one is really a disaster for the company where they have enough resources but not enough things to do with them that will drive value. Okay? So I always remind my teams is that as long as you have too many things you want to do and not enough resources, we're in a good place. You're in a good position. Let's jump to a bunch of practical questions. So back to the office, remote or hybrid, we still get these questions from our founders, you know, smaller companies, larger companies. What's your view on that? Like, how do you keep a company efficient? Do you allow people to work from home? What would you recommend a small startup to do? So I'm going to say, first of all, for a small startup, working from home is suicidal. Okay, that's my opinion on that. This is how the culture of the company is going to be created. The language of the company will be created. Everything that will create the company going forward is created in those early days. It cannot happen if you do it from home. Right? So I think for a small startup, I agree. 100%, work every day from the office. Well, it's very hard for me. Right? I heard many opinions back. I said, I just saw a few companies share with me some information. And they look at ways to measure what people actually do when they work at home. So apparently, and it depends which country, what is, uh, but uh, apparently the last day of the week and the first day of the week have become vacation days, mostly the last day of the week. So if you're going to say Thursday, if you're in the United States, it's Friday. So the actual amount of productivity that happened on that day goes down by 70% approximately from what I've seen. And on the first day of the week, it also starts at around 60%. And then during the free middle day of the week, it actually goes up, but mostly because those companies require people to arrive three days a week to work. <laughs> so I think that maybe when everybody was working from home and it was obvious that you have meetings all the time and it was okay, but I don't believe that it's a... We didn't t- test that yet at week, so I don't know what to tell you, but I think that obviously it's not as good as uh, working from uh, the office. And until what stage, like from your experience with you recommend insisting on everybody arriving to the office like 30 people 100 people i mean clearly a very generic question but kind of give people a pointer well that way around i would say at zero to 100 everybody in the office for sure yeah and then from 100 you might be saying that if you believe that they actually work in the same level maybe that's something you can do but i gotta say again i'm finding myself believing in that less and less i think that it's just not true and again, I just saw some data about it. I think that people just don't work as much from home. It's very, very hard to force yourself to do it. Yeah, I agree completely. I also think that there was a period of time in COVID when people didn't go out where the initial analysis showed very high productivity because people literally had nothing else to do. They finished all of Netflix and so they were home and they were working. But now I think that, as you said, especially the first and last day of the week, but also just in general, it's very difficult to give the same level of uh, focus. And so, you know, we are for early stage startup, we're strongly recommending 
being as much as possible together. We think that what I also read a lot of research about is around the fact that it's easier to do repetitive mundane tasks from remote. But when you need to work on innovation, when you need to work on new product features, when you need to work on something that's actually a change from the norm, that reduces the ability to deliver dramatically. I just came, by the way, to this meeting, to this podcast, right? I just came from a meeting. We work on some feature and there was this, uh, the, the sales engineer and was describing something. And I was in that meeting. It was a few other people. And we just had a brainstorming on the whiteboard. Yep. Okay. And we came up with a super simple solution for that. All right. That will probably save us months of development. There is no chance ever that this kind of a discussion would happen over video chat. It's just impossible because the interaction there was somebody went to the board, somebody said, somebody came, somebody had, somebody talked to somebody else on the side. You know, all of that thing created, okay, this brainstorming session that you cannot do in video. I've never seen that happening in the village. Never. Uh, Vishay, if you wanted to recommend one book or movie or podcast or something to founders that are looking to get better, what would that be? All right. So I'm going to tell you my favorite. All right. And uh, it's kind of an amusing one. All right. So it's called The Replacements. It's a movie with Keanu Reeves as a quarterback in an NFL team that is uh, going on a strike and they bring this team of replacements to play instead of the team, right? And I think this is the best book or anything I've seen on team building, right? And so that's my favorite one. It shows that you can find somebody who's really good at one thing, but they have to compensate on it for another guy, with other people. It shows what is team spirit, how it's built. It shows that normally when bringing a team in the beginning, they all fight, and then you have to find a way to actually focus them around something. It shows so much. It's funny movie. And I think for me, it's the best ever educational thing I've seen about team building. Well, I have to admit that I didn't see it and I'm going to watch it this weekend. So now I have something that I got out of it. I got to say, it's also very silly. So well, you know me, you know that silly doesn't scare me or oh, the other way around. I'm just going to say, you know, one of the things that this is uh, from that movie, but there's another thing. So one of the things I learned in my life, and echo from my head from that movie, is that winners always want the ball when the game is on the line, okay? Again, it's a sport movie, right? Yep. So obviously, that fits there. I know that if I have a project, okay, that is something that can move the needle a lot on the business side, all the winners in the company will fight about who gets the ball. Interesting. All right? Yep. And who gets to do it, okay? And immediately, I know that this is going to happen, and this is also a way that I know who is actually a winner. And you can see that. Once you embrace that principle, I think it's super important. Well, I think that's an amazing closing note. Avishai, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. I think there's tons of pearls of wisdom here that founders will be smart to take. And thanks so much and looking forward to the next time. My pleasure. Excellent. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers.